Welcome to CSO. Kurdistan, oddly enough, doesn't get covered very often in our podcast. But one thing that does sometimes come into the public well, discussion or um, political discourse is Kurdistan's relations with Israel. I'm not very happy with what the, what the level of discourse is. Uh, I'm not very happy about the fact that some analysts either brush off uh, what it is or um, report what I would say is a, a fa- fantastical view of uh, how it actually looks. So today uh, we have uh, Jonathan Spire, um, an expert and uh, journalist working on uh, the Middle East, a founder of the Middle East Center for uh, Reporting and Analysis, and a person who comes highly recommended when talking about the Kurdish-Israeli political relationship. Jonathan, thank you for being on CSA. Sure, thanks for inviting me. Uh, I thought I would just start off by asking you uh, what is the Kurdish-Israeli relationship? When we're talking about uh, Kurdish relations with Israel, who are we talking about and uh, what is the, what's the history? Sure. Well, I think that uh, you know, one of the important things, of course, to immediately uh, differentiate is to, to note, as we are aware, that there are a variety of you know, Kurdish populations divided into a variety of states and, uh, and subject to a variety of different political authorities. And so when we talk about the Israeli relationship with the Kurds, so to speak, we have to first of all immediately sort of drill down and, and exactly as you asked, sort of identify exactly who we're talking about. And the, and the answer for, you know, 80 to 90% of what, we'll, what we will talk about if we talk about Israel and the Kurds is that we're talking about Israel and the Kurds of what is today northern Iraq and uh, specifically of uh, what is now, of course, Kurdish regional government and specifically historically of the relationship between Israel, uh, the uh, Kurdish Jews and the Barzani family in northern Iraq. That sort of triangle, so to speak, is the is the piece of this which has quite an extensive and interesting uh, history to it. Now, if we think about those three players, so to speak, the Barzani family, the state of Israel, and the uh, Jews of Kurdistan or Jews of Iraqi Kurdistan, we can already really trace the relationship back, uh, you know, to the middle of the last century and maybe a little bit before it, uh, in terms of the interestingly historically good relations between the Barzani family as it began to rise to political prominence. Uh, or Barzani tribe, you could say, maybe as it began to rise to political prominence in the early 20th century, and the Jews of that area. Uh, the the Hawaja Hino family of Akra is, is one which is famous, and there are other Jewish families that had very good relations, both with Sheikh Ahmed Barzani and with Mullah Mustafa Barzani, going all the way back to that, to that, uh, to that period, and he had close relations with them. So this is an interesting sort of historic, historical piece, so to speak. And I would say that this is the basis for then what emerges quite early on in the 50s. Of course, the Kurdish Jews leave Kurdistan, leave Iraqi Kurdistan en masse, 1950 to 1952. They basically disappear effectively as a community. But we can see that history of good relations as forming the uh, basis for then what emerges as a communication between the State of Israel and the, uh, the and Mullah Mustafa Barzani and the people around him in the 1950s and 1960s. Now put that together with what is usually referred to as the strategy of the periphery, uh, as pursued by the Israeli government of the first Israeli Prime Minister David Ben Gurion, which stipulated that Israel, at that time facing the combined animosity of the Arab states should seek alliances with other non-Arab or indeed non-Muslim communities and countries in the region. And famously that translated into close Israeli relations with Iran prior to 1979, on and off with Turkey throughout the period in question, on and off with Ethiopia 
throughout the period in question with the Maronites in Lebanon, and last and definitely not least with the Iraqi Kurds of around Mullah Mustafa Barzani. And this relationship reaches its height, develops and reaches its height in the 1960s, extends into the mid-1970s, then abruptly ends for reasons of realpolitik. But in the course of that 12 years, really, between 63 and 75, you can see a very close relationship developing between the State of Israel and the KDP, which extends to Israeli officers being uh, deployed in northern Iraq, training the Barzani's Peshmerga, even providing uh, weaponry, including up to and including artillery and even anti-aircraft systems. So, you know, a quite extensive uh, relationship. And that which then breaks down in the 70s because of realpolitik with regard to Israel's relations with Iran and with regard to the Iran relationship to the, to the regime in Iraq, the Ba'athi regime in Baghdad. But it survived, you know, it's there, it was long-standing, it was mutually beneficial, and it was well remembered. And we can then trace this relationship entering a third chapter after 1990, 91, 92, when we begin to see the real emergence of an autonomous uh, Kurdish region in northern Iraq. And we can trace you know, the re-emergence of relations both overtly and covertly, and without spending, wishing to spend huge detail, but just to say, you know, all the way back to 1990s Prime Ministership of Yitzhak Shamir, uh, public statements made in support of Kurdish autonomy. Uh, the relationship confirmed a few years later. Um, obviously, Netanyahu's expressions of support for Kurdish independence in 2014, support for the referendum in 2017. And I think that's the, that's the overt bit. And I think covertly, we can say that an extensive relationship, certainly on the basis of energy purchase and enabling the KRG's oil to get out to international markets, and the figure given before 2017 at least, at a certain point, was that Israel was getting you know, up to you know, more than 50% of its oil from the KRG. So an extensive relationship based on energy we kind of know about and, and can confirm. Uh, and alongside that, persistent rumours of an extensive security relationship between the State of Israel and KRG, which are denied by Israel, denied by the KRG, but nevertheless seem to keep popping up and seem to keep uh, returning these, uh, these allegations. Um, and alongside that, also behind the scenes, uh, allegations of, or not allegations, but claims of an extensive uh, joint or cooperation on the diplomatic side with regard to Israeli assistance to uh, Kurdish diplomatic, Iraqi Kurdish diplomatic efforts, uh, obviously in the United States mainly, and perhaps also elsewhere. So that's with regard to the main part of any conversation about Israeli-Kurdish relations, which is the relationship, historic relationship, I would say, between Israel and the Barzanis, the Jews of Kurdistan and the Barzanis, and the consequent relationship between the KRG and Israel, which I think is an extensive and important and interesting strategic uh, connection, deriving from that uh, theory of the periphery, so to speak, on Israel's part. And on the Kurdish side, I would say, deriving from, you know, a relative kind of diplomatic isolation that the Kurds have faced, an absence of real friends in the course of their emergence to political action on the on the, the, the top level. And that's their incentive for that side of it. And that's with regard to that main piece. We could talk also, if you want to, maybe we can talk later on about the more complex and I would say less developed relations regarding Israel and Kurds in, in Iran, in Syria, and of course also in Turkey. And this is a much more complex and fraught, or each of those is a much more complex and fraught uh, story, but also one containing interesting elements that I'm happy to, to go into detail about later on if you'd like to, uh, to develop any of those. I mean, um, you did uh, mention something that uh, I think it's not just uh, a hallmark of Israel, but it's uh, a hallmark of uh, maybe the realpolitik of the, the Middle East, the relationships and uh, maybe even alliances are fluid. Um, they can shift quite easily. And it, I mean, I think the, the Israeli-Iranian relationship is interesting, but at, at the same time, 
there was a big ideological shift that happened. Uh, the entire state of Iran was uh, went for a revolution. The form of government changed, and so on. So it's not strange to to imagine that with with a change like that, that Iran would completely change its uh, entire um, idea of foreign policy and uh, uh, revise its relationship to other states as well. Um, but uh, nonetheless, you've got uh, these fluent, uh, fluid uh, relationships happening um, around the the Middle East, and that's uh, and that's uh, I mean that, that that's interesting in itself. But but it also has practical implications uh, in in the sense that uh, it in the past the KRG might have been quiet at times about. Um, how Israel should be perceived or what it sh its relationship to Israel should be, uh, while at other times it's been quite, uh, maybe not, not, not pro-Israel, but not pro-isolation of Israel. I, it was a, uh, an incident I can't remember quite well, but it was about if there was an embassy, uh, if there was peace with uh, Israel, why wouldn't we have an embassy in uh, or a consulate in Israel? Um, it seemed uh, like a quite rational statement in itself, but because of the politics of the Middle East, it's obviously something dramatic. But after the referendum of uh, 2017 and maybe uh, Iran playing a much stronger role, uh, th this has been downplayed quite a lot. Um, one thing I find interesting, though, is that Israel does seem to have some calculation of what the KRG means to Israel strategically. Could you delve into how it sees, I mean, in light of Iran, how does it see the KRG as a, as a, um, maybe a stepping stone or a, a friendly border region uh, for it to, um, uh, to work strategically? Yes, well, I think there are two obvious areas that one would focus on with this. And one of these is uh, is more difficult to kind of find detail on, and the other is more overt and, and, and clear. The first, of course, would be the potential that not only KRG, but also Kurdish communities and Kurdish organizations inside Iran, or inside Rojelat, as you guys say in Kurdish, uh, would be to any Israeli uh, intelligence gathering effort uh, inside of Iran. Now, again, here you, you hear all kinds of rumors and, you, and there are occasionally reports and very sensationalistic reports are made alleging and claiming extensive links between Israel, State of Israel and specifically Iranian Kurdish organizations and also alleging Israeli activity inside KRG with regard to intelligence gathering and so on. Um, you know, I don't, of course, have any privileged information on that. My own impression, which is an impressionistic one, a superficial one, but my own impression just from having some acquaintance with the Iranian Kurdish organizations that are based in eastern part of KRG, close to the border with Iran, you know, PDKI and Pijak and these groups, um, is that, you know, these organizations are often very poor, you know, very poorly equipped, very without apparent resource to, of, to recourse to great financial resources and infrastructure and so on. And it strikes me as quite unlikely, given the nature of these organizations and, and their level, that they are in fact receiving extensive support from any state, including Israel or anybody else for that matter. As, as we know, you know, sometimes their activities can be you know, frustrating in the sense that, you know, they obviously want to do a lot, but they have very little resources. So I tend to be skeptical at these notions you sometimes find, which claim that, you know, the Mossad or Israel is, other Israeli organizations are busy cooperating with Pijak or cooperating with PDKI, operating across the border into Iran and so on. I tend to be skeptical about a lot of that. Perhaps there is stuff going on, but if there is, I suspect it's probably on a much smaller and more pinpointed scale than perhaps some of the articles have, have, uh, have, have suggested. Um, I have no doubt that Israel and Israeli government organizations are present and active in KRG, because frankly, as, uh, as, as you and your listeners will know, you know, the KRG is, I won't say it's a playground, but, you know, it, it's, a, it's a focus of activity, frankly, for, you know, clandestine government organizations from a variety of countries in the Middle East. It's, frankly, poorly defended from the point of view of its own security structures. So it's an obvious place for 
these organizations to be active. And I've noted that, that Israel is active in that area, as we know very well, Iran is and other countries, Turkey is and other countries also are. This is with regard to the more covert side of things. With regard to the overt side of things, the picture is much more clear. And here the picture extends not only to KIG, but also into Syria, into the uh, atomic, uh, Autonomous Association of uh, Autonomous Authority of Northeast Syria, as it now calls itself, or SDC, SDF. We know what we're talking about. In this regard, Israel has an uh, important strategic interest in the survival of these entities, KIG, of course, but also the Syrian Kurdish entity. Why? Because it is a central strategic concern of Israel to prevent or complicate or frustrate the emergence of an autonomous area of control of the Iranians and their proxies, stretching all the way from Iran, across Iraq, across Syria, and thence to Lebanon and to Israel and to the Mediterranean Sea. Israel is, it's a strategic goal of Israel to try to prevent that. From this point of view, the very existence of KRG and no less importantly, the very, maybe more, even more importantly, the very existence of the Kurdish-dominated authority in northeast Syria you know, serve to prevent and frustrate that. Even if the Kurdish authorities in question don't have to do anything overtly against Iran, they just have to exist and exist and not be overtly aligned with the Iranians. So from this point of view, if we think about North, Northeast Syria, you know, as we know, the Iranians managed to reach, uh, the Iranians and Assad regime managed to reach Abu Kamal border crossing right in the south prior to the Americans and SDF reaching it. So they controlled that border crossing right at the southern tip. But all the rest of eastern Syria, all the way up to the borders with Turkey and with, uh, well, Turkey and with Iraq, um, are under the control of SDF, which means they're under control of an authority which works in alliance with the United States of America, which means they are out of bounds to the Iranians. Now, uh, I, and I think you also, you know, are familiar with the leadership of that, uh, of that entity, autonomous entity, and we are therefore familiar with the often repeated statements by leaders of that authority, such as Ilham Ahmed and others, which reiterate that they have absolutely no desire to be used as a, uh, as, a, as a weapon, so to speak, on, on behalf of one state, foreign state, against another foreign state. And this is well understood and it's entirely uh, understandable. But the point to bear in mind is that just by existing, even without any notion of trying to utilize this entity uh, against this or that other state, none of that, just by existing and by not being aligned with the Iranians, let's say, this entity plays a very positive role from the point of view of Israeli strategy and Israeli security interests. And therefore, Israel is very much uh, in favor of, of it continuing to exist. Now, what meaning does that have practically? It doesn't, of course, mean that Israeli, the Israel Defense Forces are going to be deployed or the Air Force is going to be deployed to stop the Turks or to stop Assad or to stop ISIS or to stop anybody else from trying to harass that authority as they indeed do. But I think that it is fair to surmise that when very important diplomatic decisions uh, are made, specifically in the United States context, when, for example, in October 2019, uh, the US president abruptly and unexpectedly, although actually it was already for, I think, the second or third time he'd done it, but nevertheless, abruptly and unexpectedly orders the withdrawal of United States forces from Syria, then, of course, a whole flurry of diplomatic activity begins and began in DC with all kinds of players being mobilized. And eventually the withdrawal does not, it takes place partially and allows the Turks to, of course, push in and create the enclave there between, uh, you know, between uh, Jarablus and, and Enissa and Tamer. But the Kurdish authority, contrary to some predictions at the time, does survive. This is certainly a good result from an Israeli point of view. And from the little information that I can glean in Washington, there is a sense that behind the scenes, Israel was certainly strongly arguing for the Americans to stay. So, you know, there is a sense in which Israel, on the overt level, benefits from the existence of autonomous Kurdish entities and therefore does its best using its influence in order to try to get those entities to survive and to continue 
uh, in existence. So there's the, there's the covert role, of which we know relatively little, and there's the overt role, of which we know and can surmise actually quite a lot. I mean, it, it is interesting. You did mention uh, as well before uh, Israeli, uh, I mean, th- th- these are all, this is hearsay really, but Israeli potential uh, support to groups like Pijak. Um, KDBI may be a bit more realistic. K- Pijak uh, strikes me at least as uh, very unrealistic as uh, having any kind of uh, clandestine is- Israeli support. If only because the KCK groups, the PKK-affiliated uh, groups, uh, don't have a very positive perception of Israel um, in, in general. They do uh, perceive or uh, believe or even uh, don't believe but uh, benefit from uh, the allegation that their uh, leader, uh, Ojalan, was arrested partly in Kenya, partly with uh, the help of... Uh, of Mossad. Uh, whether this is true or not, I can't really say. I've read some things to suggest uh, Turkish uh, Israeli, you know, information sharing might have had something to do with it. I'm not really sure what the extent was, but that is something that the PKK uh, does promote as uh, being a fact. Uh, how uh, does that affect how, the, the kind of uh, support? That uh, I mean, I mean, the, 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 I, I doubt that the PYD, which is also one of these KCK groups that, that's so influential in Syria, uh, would have any positive idea of receiving support from Israel, even if it was given. Um, what is Israel's perception of these groups and what is the Erjelan angle? What's the historical basis of that, if you have any idea? Yeah, sure. So this is it's a really interesting question and it's a good question also because we spent time obviously talking about the uh, commanding heights, so to speak, of Israeli-Kurdish relationship, which is the relationship between Israel and Barzani and, and those associated movements and parties. So it's a good thing to also now take a look at in some depth at the Israeli relation with KCK groups or Ocalan influence movements, which of course are, at least in my humble estimation as a non-Kurd, but which are kind of the other most interesting kind of pan-Kurdish set of organizations, you know, so we need to also certainly think of those. Yes, of course, it's a very, very different kind of relationship. And as you know very well, it it, it goes, goes back to the differing, the profoundly differing nature of these movements compared to KDP and Barzani's people, you know, the one lot coming from a tribal situation in northern Iraq, the other, the others emerging effectively from the circles of the Turkish, or I would say the, the radical left in Turkey in the 1970s. Now, it would be difficult to think of a milieu which is less sympathetic to Israel than that of the Middle Eastern secular radical left of the 1970s, specifically of that time and specifically of that of that place. Um, and the PKK, predictably, in its earliest inceptions, certainly had, uh, from my knowledge at least, uh, sympathies towards such organizations as Dr. George Khabash's Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which of course were engaged in a very bloody, uh, armed and violent campaign against Israel, including against Israeli civilians uh, at that time. Now, as we know, the PKK that relationship extended not only to similar ideological objectives, but also there was a PKK presence in uh, in southern Lebanon, in the Bikar, the Lebanese Bikar at that time. And famously, or at least famously to many Kurds, most Israelis don't know this, but famously to many Kurds, as you know, there were even PKK, a small number of PKK fighters who were killed fighting Israel in 1982, specifically the battle of the, what we call, what we call Beaufort, Beaufort Castle. The Kurds and the Arabs have another name for it, but the Beaufort Castle, the Crusader Castle in South Lebanon, a fight there, you know, in which some Kurds were killed. So this is very, very inauspicious origin of relations. And of course, if you then put into that mix, as you pointed out with regard to the events of 1998-1999, you know, the very strong and emergent, even strategic relationship between Israel and Turkey in the 1990s, uh, it would be hard to find any reason whatsoever for communication even between, you know, Israel and the KCK groups. Having said all that, you know, 
things are fluid, things do change, and things have changed very, very profoundly since then. And I can say even from my own personal working knowledge that there is a great deal of interest among KCK groups and among the KCK leadership for dialogue with Israel, for connections, not necessarily on the government level, but for for good relations with Israel. There has been outreach from those organizations, especially from their leadership uh, in Europe uh, towards Israel, not necessarily the government, but towards civil society organizations and so on, with the intention of building friendships and connections. And on the basis of, by the way, I mean, statements which have been made by Murat Krailan, by Zubair Eidar and others, and I personally have interviewed both those gentlemen on more than one occasion, and I interviewed Karailan just a, a, about over a week ago for the Jerusalem Post newspaper, and it's very interesting to note the kind of statements that they have made. Now, you know, again, bearing in mind the nature of the ideology of democratic confederalism and the complexities therein, but nevertheless, both Karailan and Zubair Eidar, to me and to other Israeli journalists and researchers, have made the point that they consider the Jewish people to be one of the peoples of the region with national rights in the region, including the right to statehood. And then they can be, of course, critical of Israeli policies and certain governments. But once you've said that, and both of those men have said it to me, as you know well, you've, you've placed yourself absolutely outside of the Middle East consensus among, let's say, majority Muslim populations in the Middle East certainly Arabs, and even majority Muslim population. You know, maybe now with the UAE and so on, it's changing. This consensus is maybe breaking down. But for a long period of time, to have said a statement, which is not just, look, pragmatically, Israel is there, so we might have to have peace with it. No, not that. But to say, no, no, there is a Jewish people. It is one of the peoples of the region, and it has the right to national self-determination. This is a very far-reaching statement for Middle East political leaders to make. And both Aydar and Karailan have made it. And Karailan welcomed, his movement welcomed me personally and another Israeli journalist in two separate trips to Kandil all the way back 10 years ago in 2010. So clearly there was an interest in outreach, an interest in relations. Now, I'm no great expert on PKK and KCK movements, but I can say my sense is this goes hand in hand with, you know, changes and advancements in those movements themselves maybe a little bit away from the kind of very doctrinaire leftism which characterized them in the 70s or in the 80s and uh, early 90s, and towards some much more pragmatic position. And in my sense, this I can say from my own acquaintance with some of the people involved rather than from public statements. But in my view, there is also a certain generational dynamic in that movement where many of the younger people involved in it I think they wouldn't like me to say this, but let me say it in my view, you know, these people are basically Kurdish nationalists. They're Kurdish nationalists of a sort of leftist uh, ideological bent, but they're Kurdish nationalists first and foremost, and they got into the business to help the Kurdish people. And this is another view compared to some of the older people, you know, who are really dyed in the wool, apoist ideologues who believe in, you know, this issue much more than Kurdish identity and Kurdish rights. So I find among those younger people, there's a much different view with regard to Israel. And I could even say with regard to some people who I know personally from those circles, that there are people who regard Israel as a kind of model and who regard Israel's success as something which certainly has lessons to be learned for, for, for Kurds, including Kurds from those circles. So it's a very complex relationship compared to the much more straightforward one of friendship, so to speak, between Israel and the Barzani Kurds and KDP. But it is nevertheless, I think, a relationship with quite a lot of promise. Now, if you factor into that uh, picture the fact that today, at least the Syrian branch you know, of KCK, so to speak, the PYD and its, and its associated movements, is essentially in alliance with the United States of America, and this has been a very, very successful alliance from an American point of view, and my personal opinion is that this is probably the greatest success that the Americans have had in terms of building a proxy, a relationship with a military proxy in the Middle East, since as far as I can remember, the list of American successes in that regard is not a long one, admittedly, yeah? But this has been a very, very successful uh, partnership, which is not finished yet. 
And what it means is that here you have a fascinating situation in which a KCK associated group with the involvement of cadre, you know, cadros from, from Kandil still there and so on, which is allied with Israel's main strategic ally, which means that actually right now, in terms of geopolitics, the most important side of KCK right now, you know, in real power terms, which is the, you know, the, the Syrian Kurds and Israel are on the same side. They're part of the same de facto alliance, namely the alliance led by the United States of America. That's a, something maybe nobody would have expected, but it's something which is very real. And I can tell you that on a more civil society level, but also up to and including Israeli officials who I've spoken to, uh, me and other Israeli journalists who have spent quite a bit of time in northeast Syria and in uh, the SDC area, on civil society level and on official level, people in Israel are very impressed. People in Israel are very impressed by the success of northeast Syria and of the Kurds in northeast Syria, the ability to create institutions, the advance of women's rights, the ability to build a successful uh, defense force. And there are even Israeli officials, I can won't name names, but senior official said to me uh, when I briefed him on this matter a few years ago, he said to me, you know, oh, they, they remind me a little bit of how we were like 60, 70 years ago, you know, and this is praise indeed. That's to say, from the Israeli point of view, a guy like that, he couldn't give you a bigger compliment, yeah, than to say, yeah, you remind me of what our guys were like 70 years ago when we were irregular military organizations and, you know, re revolutionary political structures and so on and so forth. So there's a lot to build on and a lot to work on with regard to KCK. Last thing to say about them, which is a caveat, you know, do not get carried away with enthusiasm, so to speak, which, of course, is the very complex relationship that KCK has with Iran or that KCK associated movements have with Islamic Republic of Iran. What exactly is going on there? Uh, certainly, uh, Sam Daher in his book about Syria, Assad, or we burn the country. It's a great book and contains within it an interesting allegation, which I don't know if it's true or not, but an interesting allegation which says that one of the reasons why the KCK movements were able to get that foothold from the Assad regime in 2013, and of course the Assad gave it to them, they weren't driven out, was because of a, a, a larger agreement brokered by Islamic Republic of Iran in which included a ceasefire by Pijak. If you remember, Pijak went on ceasefire in 2011, 2012 also. Now, I don't know if that allegation is true, but if it is, what it suggests is something I think probably which is true, which is a complex and unclear relationship between Kandil, PKK, KCK on the one hand, and the Iranians on the other. And that's something which is, is unclear, and that's probably going to, you know, that would be a complicating factor in the more positive picture I was painting a few minutes ago. But nevertheless, uh, this relationship is, is complicated, fraught with historic difficulties, but nevertheless also has very considerable uh, potential, I would say now, uh, in the current reality in which we find ourselves. I mean, the, the Kurdish-Iranian relationship in itself, uh, actually, before I go into that, uh, you mentioned your meetings with the PKK. Am I wrong in saying that they were part of the reason you got banned from the US, or is that just the story I heard? No, that's what, that's what I think. I mean, of course, when I got banned from the US and then thankfully unbanned uh, a little while later after a small public campaign, um, I just kind of did it by process of deduction so to speak, as to who I thought was probably responsible, because there's a number of people or forces in the region who, you know, insofar as they're aware of me, I'm not saying they spend all day thinking about me, but insofar as they're aware of me, would probably wish me some harm and misfortune, right? And I would probably include Lebanese Hezbollah on that list and the Iraqi Hashta uh, Shabi and probably some others. But none of the organizations in question have any influence in Washington whatsoever. On the contrary, all of them actually are enemies of the United States, with the single exception of the government of Turkey. I mean, single exception in the list of people who might not like what I've been up to, but who also have very good relations with the Americans. The Turks are the only ones who do. And of course, Turkey does have a, a long history of uh, using its influence in Washington and in European countries also to try to harass individuals from those countries who it regards as friends of the PKK. Um, so I suspect that at a certain point, they included me on that list, even though, of course, I'm not a supporter or still less an activist or something like that of, of those movements. But 
I think they, at a certain point, probably included me on that list and then used their influence in that way. And we were able, luckily, through public pressure and so on, to get the decision reversed. But I am aware, as I think you're aware too, you know, of people from Western countries who maybe actually are supporters of PKK, even though they're certainly not militants or people actively involved in military activity, but they are supporters of PKK and they have been banned from the United States and they've never managed to get their, their ban reversed. So it's a, it's a known category and I suspect that for a period of time I kind of got included on it, yeah. It, it, could, it would be a funny story in, in any case that uh, Kurds somehow got you banned from the US. Uh, but uh, you, you mentioned perhaps that there might be some Iranian support for the, the PKK or there might be a relationship there um, that goes beyond uh, maybe avoiding each other. Um, I'm, I'm skeptical of this. I think it's a, an allegation that's gotten used uh, by particularly by those that uh, analysts or um, even journalists that are friendly with uh, the the Syrian rebel uh, rebels and kind of thinkers around that um, around that uh, group, they often use that allegation and cite the the withdrawal from um, the periphery, um, the Kurdish periphery, uh, as reasons for for this support. It. I mean, there are things that speak against that. Partially, the the fact that the Iran has attacked the the PKK on several occasions at the at the moment, they militarized their borders. They're supporting a Turkish push, even though it doesn't get talked about that often. As well as just the strategic value of leaving your soldiers in a war. Outside of border control duties, I mean, if you leave border control duties and can put them into fighting uh, for core regions, because, I mean, really, Syria is just a coastal um, country in reality. Most of the actual, except for maybe Aleppo, that's close to the Turkish border, uh, most of the actual main uh, cities are on on a strip by the coast. That's what needed to be protected, not some outskirts of Hasaka and Jazeera and so on, some desert regions, why would you care? Really, beyond the fact that uh, Derezur was a perfect kind of gateway uh, to keep ISIS from spreading too much or rebels from spreading too much, um, these regions were inconsequential in many ways. So I'm a bit skeptical of uh, any allegations of there being a greater relationship uh, beyond the fact that Iran has what I would probably term as a polite rivalry with Turkey. Uh, it, it They do not compete and they avoid open competition where it matters. Uh, they don't annoy each other too much and they will, as much as possible, uh, praise and uh, cooperate um, with each other. Uh, on a lot of issues, but there's polite rivalry. They know where the borders are set. The borders have been set for, since the 1600s for a reason. They they do both benefit from not getting into each other's business. That being said, uh, Iran still has the polite rivalry in mind. So if the, the PKK keeps Turkey from expanding too much uh, and keeps them occupied, why not? Uh, why would you attack kind of a force that's destabilizing your main opponent in the region, if you see it that way in real terms. Uh, that's kind of how I perceive yeah, I, Iran's I was, view on the, on the PKK. No, I think that's right. I want to be clear, it's not at all that I'm uh, endorsing that view. Uh, I think we have to note that the allegations are often made. And I think from, since we're discussing kind of Israeli relationship, in this case with these organizations, you know, the fact that those allegations are out there and that therefore there's a kind of sense of not complete clarity in this regard, uh, I think will militate, you know, sort of leads to suspicions, let's say, on the Israeli side, which otherwise wouldn't be there. And that's something to bear in mind. Let me add on that, that in conversations with uh, officials of KRG and KDP associated people, I I should say that, you know, it's, it's not only the circles close to the Syrian Arab and Syrian Sunni Islamist rebels who promote this, they certainly do. 
But you can also hear it, and I've also heard it from KDB people as well, who say, knowing that we are Israelis, let's say, say, by the way, you know, you should be aware of the fact that actually the PKK are part of the Iranian attempt to build, and, and Sinjar is one of the, you know, other stuff. So I'm afraid this allegation is not only heard from the Arab rebels, but also even from other Kurdish forces too. I agree with you. I'm skeptical about it as well. I only mention it because it kind of, I think, it's a complicating factor, let's say, in communication. I'm, I'm happy you mentioned it. It's an interesting thing to, to do, uh, to talk about. And it does have, I mean, it does factor in how Israel would perceive Kurds in general and how it would see its relationship with them. I, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful you did. I'm not saying that, I'm not suggesting that you actually uh, believe it one way or another. Uh, it's just, uh, it's an interesting um, topic in general. But there's one thing that I would like to ask you. Um, it might be our last question, just time-wise. But one thing that I'm wondering about is the fact that uh, in in both states, or rather in both communities, because the Kurdistan region isn't a state, uh, there there seems to be a lot of goodwill for the other side, as you mentioned with uh, the the unnamed official, but also in wider civil society in Israel, if you ask about Kurds, there does seem to be kind of this perception, especially maybe because of the Syria war. Uh, with uh, the, I often hear, hear the terms, you know, feminist and women fighters and so on. These positive, uh, you know, attributes from an Israeli perspective. Uh, get thrown around a lot. And obviously in the KRG, there's a lot of... Um, uh, maybe, uh, you know, uh, um, praise for the fact that Israel was able to fight off so many uh, Arab states. It's been able to c- continue being a um, an independent country. It's militarily powerful and so on. Uh, so even if you, do, you might not uh, see everyone like Israel in that sense, that uh, there's still in civil society a deep respect for Israel. That being said, in terms of practical help uh, since the end of, uh, I mean, since Iran really had its revolution, I haven't personally seen any evidence of it. I've seen, as you mentioned, Netanyahu um, capitalizing on um, the Kurdish narrative um, in the sense that he'll he'll say things like uh, the Kurds deserve their own state. Or uh, look at them, uh, they've been fighting and that means they deserve their own country and so on. Uh, he, he, uh, he'll call them a fighting people, I think, if that's, uh, might be paraphrasing it. Uh, mm. uh, he's used terms like this. Yet there's been no suggestion in the Knesset to uh, support arms or uh, in any practical way lobby uh, the US, which would probably be their best bet. Uh, for uh, Kurdish independence movements uh, and so on. Um, there's uh, probably been, as you say, lobbying for the, the KRG and help in that sense, but uh, nothing in, in practical terms. Uh, no arms shipments, uh, no paying for the budget. Of course, you've got the, the oil uh, deal um, with the, the Israel buying um, oil from the Jayan pi- pipeline. Um but even that seems to, to be a bit hush-hush. Uh, what's stopping Israel from, for example, uh, giving anti-aircraft weaponry or advanced weaponry uh, of some sort or uh, building a movement for, uh, well, I, I wouldn't like to say in the mo- independence, but building a movement to, to help uh, the KRG th- strengthen its hand. Uh, what's stopping these practical kind of applications of uh, Israeli power? Yeah, so I think with regard to weapons uh, provision, the answer is very clear. Israel's not currently in a state of uh, active war with the government in Baghdad. And if Israel were to begin to militarily support, I mean, what would, you know, it's very clear who the weapons would be used against. That's to say, the forces that moved into Kirkuk and into other areas in October 2017 were the forces of the government in Baghdad. Uh, Effectively to provide weaponry, you know, to a force fighting the Iraqi army would be seen as an act of hostility and aggression by Israel against Baghdad. Israel has a number of countries it's get on, uh, not so many anymore, but a number of forces it's engaged in conflict with, and it has no desire to, to pick another one. 
So I think this is very clear. The other reason I think, and I say this on the basis of some knowledge, uh, is very often because of the KIG side. That's to say, very often it's the Kurdish side and not the Israeli side that wants the relationship to be covert and invisible. Actually, from an Israeli point of view, it would be beneficial to have everything known because from a PR point of view, nothing could be better than for Israel to have you know, Muslim leaders like the Barzanis getting up and saying, we think Israel's great and thank you for your help. The reason why there is, there is a relationship, economic and diplomatic and perhaps also security, but it's not talked about. It's not because Israel doesn't want it to be talked about. It's because the Kurdish side doesn't want it to be talked about for the obvious reason that they don't want to poison their own relations. And as they always say to the Israeli side, you have to understand our geographical reality. We have Baghdad to the south. We have Tehran to the east. And we have Damascus to the west. So you don't need to go any further as to why they don't want to have their friendship with us, with Israel, uh, proclaimed from the rooftops, so to speak. So I think that, you know, I, I would be cautious about sort of saying there isn't an overt, a, a practical relationship. I really think that there, the evidence suggests that there is and that it may well be quite an extensive one and that that's up to and including diplomatic friendships and, and relations on the American side, which is where it's so vital, of course, in which both Israel, but not only Israel, interestingly, also American Jewish organizations, influential US Jewish organizations, are very keen to work in cooperation with Kurdish organizations, and especially those associated with KRG, and are doing so. And much of it isn't talked about, but, um, but this, I think, is, uh, is the state of affairs. And of course, with regard to the Syrian Kurdish uh, authority, then the, the situation is the same, but multiply it by 10, so to speak, for, for obvious reasons, you know, especially given the uncertainty of the American support, and especially since last year, the resumption of negotiations with Damascus, you know, I think we can all sympathize, you know, that if you, if, if you have to go down to Damascus to negotiate with Ali Mamluk, then you don't want the first item he brings to the meeting to be, yeah, what about that meeting you had in Washington last week with the ambassador of Israel to Washington, D.C.? Right? For, re for reasons which are too obvious to have to elaborate, that's not something any Ilham Ahmed or anybody else would want to have to discuss in Damascus. So, you know, I think often the sensitivities come from the Kurdish side and they're completely understandable. And that's where things stand, I would say. Um, I think it's a promising relationship for all, for all concerned. But I think it does also have inevitable limitations because of the kind of geopolitical and strategic realities in which both sides uh, have to operate. No, I, I agree. I, I asked the question mainly because I imagined something that would be something people would wonder about. Um, there is one more question that I'll ask simply because it's one of those things that I think people will ask me why I didn't ask, even though I would tell them that you are probably not the expert I would have to ask us to. And that is that in Kurdistan, at least, uh, there is a memory, a recent memory, of the uh, Kurdish Jewish uh, population that, as you said, uh, existed there until the, the 50s, uh, when they were legally, more or less, forced out. Uh, some obviously left because they maybe had relatives or imagined that their lives would be better uh, making Aliyah to Israel. Uh, others, it seems most, uh, didn't do that, uh, but were forced out and forced to leave most of the property behind. Uh, in Kurdistan, there's some uh, curiosity about uh, what happened to these people and what, the, what they're doing now. Um, do they still have cultural events? Do they consider themselves um, Kurdish? Do they speak Kurdish or keep any Kurdish customs? Uh, what do you know about them? Yeah, I actually, I'm happy to answer that question. I do know quite a little bit about that uh, situation, even though I myself am not of, uh, of Kurdish ancestry. Um, yeah, the, the, there's, about, there's about 150,000 people of that community or descendants of that community in Israel today. Most of them live around the area of Jerusalem, which is also the area where I live. And I would say that there is, well, there definitely is uh, a, a strong, strong feelings of attachment and positive memories, which you can easily find among those people with regard to both Kurdish identity and, uh, and their relations with, you know, with their Kurdish neighbours before they came to Israel. I'm no expert on the 
precise historical origins and complexities of it. Some people say that actually when they were in Kurdistan, they didn't so much consider themselves Kurds. And now they're in Israel, they more do consider themselves Kurds. I, I don't know about all that. I'm sure they could, a Kurdish Jew could discuss that better than I can. But certainly overtly in terms of their positive memories, in terms of their positive attachments, and to a considerable extent in terms of maintaining some folkloric customs, this is a strong and visible element of Israeli public life. Yeah, and, and very much a, a positive one, I would say. I think that it goes, we shouldn't forget that there were very difficult situations in Israel in the 1950s with regard to discrimination that undoubtedly did exist between the dominant uh, Jewish uh, populations here of European origin and the newcomers coming in from Middle East countries, Iraq, Morocco, Tunisia, Iran. And, you know, Kurdish Jews were also part of that dynamic. But I think Israel's moved on a great deal in the last half century. And I would say that today, yeah, this is a well-integrated community, but certainly people who have a very strong um, awareness of their, of their origins. And, and this enriches the city. I mean, we can think here. I know when I've had Kurdish friends coming to visit here, from Diyarbakir, from other places, you know, I've been very happy to take them to parts of the city where you have a Kurdish influence and you can go to Kurdish restaurants and so on. And been, they've been very happy to uh, to discover that. And the people here have been very happy to meet Kurds coming in, you know, as visitors. It's something which is really, really welcomed. And most of my Kurdish friends who've come here have mentioned how positively they found it when they said that they came from Kurdistan, how positively they were received also by Jews here who came from Kurdistan, but also just by the more general uh, Israeli-Jewish community. So I think that, that sort of soft power element does exist. And there's been, because a number of Israeli journalists also visited you know, Rojava and, and that area over the last few years and then came back and produced some quite high-profile work, um, that's also entered the public consciousness a bit, just the generally the generally positive sense that there isn't really any negatives. These are the general perception. It's not that Israeli Jews spend all day long thinking about Kurdistan. Most of them don't think about it much. The ones of Kurdish origin think about it more. But in any case, when they think about it, the thoughts are positive. I think this is more or less true across the board. You know, So that, that would be the situation there, I would say. Wow, I was uh, very happy to hear you had an answer for that. Uh... Well, Jonathan, in that case, I'd uh, like to thank you for uh, taking time to uh, answer uh, all my questions. And uh, uh, thank you for being on CSA. Most welcome. Thanks for the invitation.